Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So many people that I speak to are so heavily focused on banks. But where did this start? It didn't start in banks. It started in trade credit and it started in store credit. The banks were extremely late adopted. And as far as I'm concerned, they're still late adopted. It goes a lot slower. You're, just, you're, you're going to keep on having a steam engine instead of a Ferrari. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies from around the world. Because, let's face it, not every show can be about true crime. I'm your host, Brendan LaGrange. I've been working in consumer credit risk for the last 20 years within lenders and consultancies, delivering projects across the credit lifecycle and in over a dozen countries from Africa to Europe to Asia. And for almost all of that time, my job was to translate analytical potential into business affecting stories. That's what I want to bring to this podcast. I'll be speaking to a range of technical experts, business owners, and those who have a bird's eye view of their local lending market to hear how they think about solving the problems inherent in lending money to strangers. These stories will vary greatly from bank to fintech, from developing market to develop, from startup to incumbent to regulator. But if there's one constant, it is that these days just about every aspect of lending touches on data and usually via some form of statistical model or scorecard. So for my very first episode, I wanted to bring in one of the grandmasters of that art. You heard him right at the start, reminding me that lending is not within the sole purview of banks. It isn't today, and it never has been. Banks and their concerns must be a keystone of any discussion on lending strategy, of course. But many of the tools we use today were not innovated inside of a bank, and many of the tools we'll use in the future are similarly likely to come from the outside. Raymond Anderson literally wrote the textbook on credit scoring, two of them in fact, the Credit Scoring Toolkit and Credit Intelligence and Modeling. He's a globally requested speaker on topics of risk modeling and something of a star in China. And I was in awe of the breadth of his knowledge on the subject when I had the pleasure of speaking to him for this episode. We spent a good amount of time talking about how the industry got to where it is before taking a closer look at some of the subjects that will be recurring themes in the show. So I think in terms of kind of kicking it off, it'd be really great to have some contextualizing of yeah, the, the history of predictive uh, modeling and, and credit scoring in general. Like, where does it come from? How did we get to where we are now? Where do we think we're going? All right, I would put it down more in terms of a, a history of risk assessment of ratings and scoring. Allow me to ramble for a bit. The extension of credit has been going on for, you know, 
practically as long as man's been sentient. Uh, there's been sort of some type of a back and forth, uh, whether it be in a barter economy or a money-based economy. But um, you know, initially it was always based upon uh, personal relationships, and if not personal relationships, potential sanctions and collateral. Most of that relied upon the knowledge of an individual, the person who held the purse string. The real thing started when you start getting into the instances like uh, the Middle Ages in Europe, where you had merchant banking and branch offices and potentially amongst the Jewish community where they were doing the money lending, where it was rules that were learned and passed on to employees or to uh, sons and daughters and family and sort of other people who were picking up the trade of money lending. And even then, it was based upon getting information. Much of it was uh, you know, to the extent of having agents in foreign courts. Uh, there are stories of the Italian moneylenders had agents in the English court in the 15th century who were reporting back because the king at the time was going on all sorts of escapades into France and sort of like warring all over the place. And they were worried about the money that they spent. It actually brought two Italian family banks. It ruined them. It bankrupted them. The one thing that came about with the Industrial Revolution was collaboration between lenders. Uh, the first real effort at collaboration was in London, the Georgian tea houses in the 18th century. And most of it was just informal at first. Lenders meet in the coffee or tea houses. And uh, in 1776, there was a society formed called the London Society for the Protection of Trade Against Swindlers and Sharpers, where swindlers and sharpers were frauds and cheats. And this was the era when no distinction was made between fraud and credit. If you were guilty of either, there was a potential for ending up in a debtor's prison. What No one really knows what happened to that society, but it laid the groundwork for most of what happened in the United Kingdom thereafter, where you had a multitude of trade protection or guardian societies that developed in various cities across the United Kingdom. Sometimes they were collaborations between lenders. Sometimes they were established by chambers of commerce. One of them started off being seven tailors, serving the carriage trade in an era where you had a whole bunch of dandies and dandizettes that were going around in fancy clothes, living off of their appearances and uh, status within society and not paying their bills. That still often happens today. Some things never change. But this whole thing, this uh, mutual society type of arrangement, that was not peculiar to the United Kingdom or Europe. Uh, because it also applied to a lot of consumer lending in the United States. But in terms of the trade credits in the United States, it went on a for-profit basis where you had enterprising individuals that would set things up. We'll cover that in a moment. And the other type of setup was government initiatives to establish credit bureaus. But the one thing you'll find with the government initiatives is that it's often the 
government will find that it doesn't have the capacity to run it, and it will either offload it to a private concern or engage with a private concern to provide the technical expertise to run it. Over the past years, there have been a a lot of new bureaus uh, established in ever smaller countries. Much of it has been an initiative on the part of uh, the International Finance Corporation and the World Bank, uh, trying to uh, speed the development of emerging countries. But getting to uh, into more recent times, sort of the same, uh, now more recent, I'm talking here early 1800s, Baring Brothers was using Mr. Ward um, on the eastern coast of the USA as a, an agent, a spy gathering information uh, on the ground. It was a very expensive way of gathering information. In the 1830s, there were a couple of crowds that started experimenting with providing a service where it wasn't just one person providing information to one company. Uh, It was a business enterprise that was going to collect information and share it uh, with a subscriber-based type setup. And it was uh, mostly started out of people who were involved in wholesaling. Uh, You had imports coming from England, or the uh, factories on the eastern seaboard of the states who were serving the country trade. The people would sort of arrive en masse, the traders would arrive en masse in New York and Boston and sort of want to buy. And uh, some of these guys developed dossiers of information. First and foremost was Lewis Tappan. He was a silk importer and wholesaler in New York. And... um, Lewis had a failed enterprise elsewhere, but he was doing the back office and was uh, interviewing clients and developed a lot of information. Over time, people started coming to him and asking him for information out of these dossiers, and he would tell them. And he said, hang on, this is a business opportunity. And it became known as the Mercantile Agency in the United States. Now, the Mercantile Agency, best that I can tell, was uh, not a company but a network of agencies. They went by various names, depending upon who the proprietor was, whether it be in St. Louis or Boston or Philadelphia or Baltimore or wherever it was set up. They extended to such an extent that at one stage, they were considered practically the largest employer in the United States. When I say largest employer, not everybody was an employee, though. They worked through what they called credit reporters. And the credit reporters tended to be uh, lawyers, attorneys, respected members of the community in various towns across the United States, three of which went on to become American presidents. Um, Actually, no, four went on to become American presidents. But Abraham Lincoln was one of them. Now, they kind of dominated the um, kind of American trade John Bradstreet, he started up John Bradstreet and Sons for the country trade, bloody, bloody, blah. It was only a few years later, and it was really Bradstreet who was the first to come up with a credit rating, the concept of a credit rating in about 1857. Uh, the mercantile agency eventually passed on to Robert Dunn, 
And Don was a bit slow to catch on. He was expanding. He did a hell of a lot of stuff. But uh, Brad Street came up with 18th First, and uh, Don came out a bit, perhaps a couple of years later. And these two were competing sort of forever and day. It was only in the early 1900s with uh, John Moody, he got the bright idea of saying, oh, yeah, well, we're doing all of this and sort of, uh, well, we, they're, they're doing all of this and perhaps we could apply the same idea to traded bonds. During that time, all was judgmental. Um, there were no pointing systems. But it, during the 1930s, you had a couple of people who presented papers where they'd come up with pointing systems that they tried to apply within banks. Uh, you had one of the home lending organizations during the Depression. They came up with a model, but it wasn't a, a pointing-type system. Uh, Spiegel was a furniture company who sold on mail order. They came up with a pointing model. Uh, goods were sent out without prepayment. You know, they, they had the slogan, we trust everybody. And the level of morality within the United States, they weren't far wrong. They practically could trust everybody. Part of the American way was to pay your bills. But the, the first attempt at uh, a proper statistical model was David Durand, but it was purely an academic exercise. Effectively, what he was trying to do was to assess the validity of the decisions that were being made by companies selling motor vehicles. He had, uh, uh, his kind of claim to fame was really sampling. I think he got a sample of something like 7,000 car loan applications, went through them, and so sort of sampled them down and came up with a model and sort of said, well, this model works. But he concluded that it would never be good enough to use practically. And during the 1950s, I believe Sears, I cannot find any proof of it. It's kind of more anecdotal. I believe Sears also used scorecards of some sort. The first real attempt, now this is kind of the, now where you start getting into what people commonly accept as the proper origins of credit scoring was uh, Bill Fair and Earl Isaacs, the origins of FICO. They uh, were in California. They started, uh, I think they were ex-Stanford University, and one of the, this was in the era when computers were becoming big and everybody was trying to automate as much as possible back office processes. And the first thing was to come up with a billing system for a credit card called Carte Blanche. And they got the idea of saying, okay, you know, we're advancing statistics, we're advancing in computer technology. Can we not come up with some form of a model that's going to be used to assess credit? And they had a mail shot. They sent the mail shot out to 50 companies, and they only had one respondent, the American Investments Company. It was also a small loan lender based in St. Louis. But it had branches operating out uh, you know, across the United States. But they did initially for the St. Louis office, and it was successful. And eventually, I think they had something like nine different scorecards for different parts of the United States that were in play. And uh, this was really Fair Isaac's proof of concept. But the thing about it at the time, it wasn't just the Statistics, it was also just a very tedious process because so many of the applications were on paper 
And it was a massive data capture exercise. You would have to sort of set up banks of sort of capture terminals, punch cards, all that sort of thing. And it was a factory type process trying to come up with a single scorecard. But they basically captured the market sort of up until the mid-1970s, period of 15 years. In the 1990s, you had others coming up. Uh, One of the first was MDS, or Management Decision Systems. It was founded by John Kaufman and Gary Chandler. And they saw that FICO wasn't paying much attention to the information provided by the credit bureau. And they said, well, shouldn't we be trying to integrate this information in somehow? They went out and they approached the same company that FICO had started off with, that being American Investments, and said, can we develop a scorecard for you? And before long, they were offering their services to the credit bureau themselves. Uh, MDS eventually got bought by Experian. Um, Actually, at the time, that was Consumer Credit Nottingham. And they bought MDS, at least partially, I believe, to get access to these scoring methodologies that they were using, which was linear probability. That was Experian's start into the scoring game. And another crowd that emerged also for the same reason was Storex. And Jean-Michel Trousse, He was the European representative of FICO, perhaps the 10th employee of FICO, and he grew Scorex into quite a significant concern. Unfortunately, he was killed in a plane crash on his honeymoon. The common feature here was that, like banks were slow to be on the take-up of the Scoring methodologies, FICO was slow to see the value of bureau information. And for that matter, the credit bureau saw FICO as a competitor. They didn't see FICO as somebody that they could collaborate with. And yet nowadays, a FICO score is synonymous with a bureau score. Yeah, I was going to say, because people working in the industry will know FICO for many of its products. But if you asked a person, in the, particularly in the States, what does FICO do then? I say the bureau score. Um, so it's interesting to hear they're actually pretty late to that game. Uh, very much so. Uh, 1995, with uh, credit scores being required for home loans within the United States, you had two, two legislative aspects to it. The one part for some of the practices that we would associate with spying, like newspaper clipping, interviewing neighbors, um, bar gossip, uh, that was pretty well banned. It forced the credit bureau to start saying, okay, we need to get more concrete information. And basically it said, okay, uh, you cannot use your judgmental biases to discriminate against anybody. So it really forced people towards the statistical model, which could be used uh, to support decision. So if you could support the decision by numbers, you were seemingly free of bias. I mean, that uh, there is still an argument there, a valid argument relating to the dis- um, disparate impact. But in any event, you had all of these forces that were shifting the trend towards empirical analysis of potential risks and applying number crunching as part of the process. So much initially was for the small loan lenders, retailers, credit card companies, not the banks. 
the banks say we're kind of of the view, well, we can go it along. We, uh, we've got the capabilities. And, and as a result, a lot of the banks were reluctant to partake. That applies mostly to uh, Britain and the expedition colonies, where you have the four major banks, five major banks. It was more fragmented in the States. So the, I think the American banks were more open to it, even if they were probably also a bit slow. When you spoke earlier about you know, those first scorecards, the FICO model on the one hand, focusing on maybe modeling technique and others competitors coming through with a, a broader data approach. Sounds a bit like it's a history repeating itself. That is a lot of fintech happening in alternative data, in machine learning, in, in new modeling techniques. So we seem to be in this position where you've got, again, two, two routes and at some stage in the future, once, uh, you know, once it's a little bit more mature in terms of uh, AI and machine learning, we may then see those coming together again. You mentioned about sort of machine learning. I see machine learning as being something that can provide value, but uh, you need to sort of use it with some skepticism. For the most part, you're going to use machine learning where the materiality is low. Banks are not great adopters. Small loan lenders would be more open to it. The fintechs, or you've got a cell phone company who's extending credit. Those are relatively low materiality applications. When you start getting into vehicle finance and home loans, and uh, especially where there is a significant requirement for, uh, for transparency, where they say, listen, so you can use this stuff, but you have to know what, how it works. You can have the best possible prediction, but if you don't understand it, then it gets marked down. So if I were to advise anybody, I would say, listen, if you want to go and try out the machine learning, always have a backup. Be ready to show out the machine learning model for whatever reason, or potentially use them in conjunction with each other. But uh, there's more to be gained out of data than these greater sophistication techniques. There is a uh, flat maximum, no matter what technique you apply to it. And one of the most obvious, which is happening in Europe, is the open banking, primarily related to transactional data that banks will have a huge amount of, and which has given banks a competitive advantage over uh, smaller players. We're only just at the start of it in South Africa. But um, it, one could imagine the whole open banking thing being not a separate type of a credit bureau, but being taken over by the credit bureau. The, the purpose of it was to open up the, the lending market to smaller lenders uh, and to fintech. But the goal was a base of transactional data that could be used in particular to support lending to those people that don't perhaps don't have that credit history. I developed a model based on some uh, transactional data in Kenya. And all I had was the minimum balance, the maximum balance, and the credit turnover for a transaction account or current account. And what came into the model was month-on-month volatility in those figures. I just used the coefficient of variation for six months and um, for both of those values, it showed up in the model. And um, 
They don't, didn't have a strong bureau, so I'm not able to say how it uh, would have worked if the bureau information were there. But suffice it to state, it was uh, sufficient for, to feature in the model and not insignificantly. And so the UK Bureau environment already includes turnover on current accounts. So there's already a pretty solid understanding of affordability. And even in that space, putting the open banking data in gives uh, sort of noticeable improvements in, in risk modeling. In terms of credit risk when I was in the bank, I don't think we were using actually what transaction did you spend on what merchant category codes. A few fraud or fraud adjacent things like, okay, spending casinos, we might look at differently or cash withdrawals. But I think there's open banking, even the big banks, I think it's opening their eyes. When you're talking about that, that's actually one area where I would see that the machine learning models most certainly would add value where you're wanting to try to get that little bit of extra lift and find out where you're uh, missing the boat or being locked out of the party, then uh, bring that in. But I would see it as being best as an overlay. Obviously, we've spoken at the moment about kind of a historic emergence of sharing data, building scores, but that's not a process that's finished. Credit bureaus, uh, national level scores are still being rolled out. In my work recently, uh, I was involved in the first rollout of scores in fairly developed markets like Thailand and Malaysia. You've been working with the IFC closer to the coalface. Um, so it'd be really interesting to hear how these same steps in the process are happening uh, in the modern context, as well as the hard-won lessons of rolling some of these things out, but in a developing market. I'd worked for Standard Bank for 34 years, and of that, about 19 were in credit scoring in various capacities. In 2014, I received a phone call out of the blue from someone in the International Finance Corporation who asked if I'd be willing to assist on a project in Lebanon. And at first, I thought it was a joke. I didn't believe this. Like, who is this guy? And uh, I listened to him, and I said, well, I'm employed by Standard Bank. But um, he said, oh, that shouldn't be a problem. We have lots of guys that are working for companies, and they are allowed to do these projects because they tend to bring knowledge back to the workplace. About six months later, I get another message saying the project is on. And I committed to it, and then the my employer, or at least my boss, knew about it. But the moment one started going through the whole process, they said, sorry, you cannot accept paid employment from somebody else while being employed with us. And I thought, after so many years, I think I need a change. So I went off to Lebanon. We sat around in a room for days with credit experts trying to say, okay, we want to consider this, we want to consider that, we want to consider the other things. And we came up with a model. Now, the one problem I always find with these things, though, is that develop a model, you go away, and you never get any feedback. And often, those models will never be implemented. Or if, if something goes wrong, you never hear about it. To the best of my knowledge, uh, this was implemented, and they were satisfied with it. Uh, another one that I was involved in, uh, also rather different, um, was in Pakistan. But uh, I was in a hotel at a machine gun emplacement, street facing, and a machine gun emplacement over the parking lot. Uh, this was in Karachi. If that doesn't make you a little bit nervous, then hmm, it's kind of um, credit scoring from the far side. Yeah. I think I've stayed at a few hotels where there's x-ray machines at the door and maybe some of those guys with mirrors on sticks looking for bombs under cars, but never an actual machine gun turret. Uh, and both manned. But in any event, 
in another instance, uh, now this wasn't the IFC, it was through uh, the German um, Reconstruction and Development Agency, and it was in Myanmar, a lovely country if it didn't have the political problems. Ultimately, the model was implemented with this simple rules-based model. And several months later, I received a phone call or a message saying they had seen that the scores were somehow corresponding to their decisions, that it was moving in the right direction, in the right fashion. Another one was Romania. That was one where I was presented with a very small amount of data. I only had 267 defaults. And uh, in Kenya, the one thing I liked about the Kenyans, it was very much a can-do attitude. It's like, let's get in there. Let's do it. They want to move into the digital lending. Really, all I had to work with was uh, some behavioral information, and the behavioral information wasn't necessarily in the best form. And at the end of it, having an application model with no application, just purely based upon the behavioral data. Now, got all of this done, and they were all very gung-ho, but they didn't have the capacity to implement, to link into their systems. But I think that happens in a lot of instances when you get into the consulting end where there isn't follow through. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, we had a consultant for many years with Standard Bank. His name was Jez Fremantle. And it was possibly a decade, if not a bit more, that he was uh, guiding us. Yeah, you're not just seeing this working in the big established markets, you're seeing this approach working in all conditions. Actually, one of the most interesting um, models that I saw uh, was used for po- poverty scoring, where the uh, a guy called Mark Schreiner, and he kind of had this idea whereby he's got all of this information from census. But you, you're wanting to go out into the field and, and you have these definitions of poverty, but it actually takes a lot to collect that information. But you've got a lot of field workers that are going out and they want to do quick and easy assessments of should a person 
qualify for some type of social assistance. So he had all of this data to be able to define who was poor and who was not poor and a lot of stuff around it. But he chose for his predictors, it wasn't just what is the most predictor. He chose the variables that were the most easily observable or as ascertainable for a field agent. And it's something that we perhaps forget. We tend to sort of uh, have data arrive in our desks and it's all think it's all free. So in any event, uh, these field agents, they go out, they look at a place and they say, how many inhabitants are there? What's the roof look like? Is there a television? Is there a bicycle? And so on and so on and so on. They enter into the scorecard and they say, okay, this guy would qualify for assistance or not. And it was perhaps one of the most novel uh, applications that I found for applying these types of methodologies. Um, in fact, one of the episodes that's coming up after yours is with some guys that are doing um, big data scoring in, in Africa, well, in developing markets around the world, trying to scale that sort of approach. So they take NASA satellite photos and look at how much light is there at night, you know, see how close you are to a school or to a train station and incorporating that uh, into their scores for thin file new to credit customers. Clearly, you're keeping yourself very busy with your consulting work, your work with the IFC. Um, but on top of that, you're also a writer. So maybe we can finish by taking a closer look at that. The Credit Scoring Toolkit has been out for over a decade now and established something of a following. Uh, in fact, some of my colleagues in Hong Kong were a little bit starstruck when they heard that I'd once worked with you, thanks to that rather popular Mandarin translation uh, of the book. Uh, but you also have a new book coming out this year. Uh, so how did you move from scoring practitioner into textbook author? And what can we look forward to in your new book when it's released later this year? It started off being a, a little guide that was supposed to be written for the South African Institute of Bankers as course material. Um, the South African Institute of Bankers never got it. In total, it was uh, over three years of work. Then I met up with someone from Oxford University Press in Edinburgh, and uh, they said, so please send us the manuscript. Uh, end of 2006, it was finished, uh, the manuscript submitted, and the whole thing was ready for August for the Edinburgh Conference, the Credit Scoring and Control Conference, which is a, a biannual conference and something I would recommend to anybody. But in any event, this next one's going to be virtual. It's coming up, and I've got a paper that I'm looking to present at it. Uh, that said, it got out there. And in short order, I was hearing, oh, yeah, so somebody saw it in Uruguay. And someone saw it in, somewhere in Siberia. And someone saw it. So I realized that it was getting out all over the place. Now, one of the things with these books is that they don't have very large readerships set of academic textbooks that you'll probably be lucky if there are 400 eventually sold. Well, this one, I think it's somewhere towards 2000, which is not exactly Harry Potter, unfortunately. No, but uh, I've, I've got two books out as well, so I, I understand those numbers. Uh, the thing is that it's breadth, just sort of how widely it is read and how much it is referenced. 
There aren't exactly another, a lot of other books that are written by practitioners that go into any level of detail. Uh, there's really uh, sort of myself and Naeem Siddiqui. Uh, well, Bart Basins, he gets more into the academic aspects of it. Yeah, another one is Stephen uh, Finlay. And all of them are uh, good books. Um, if anybody were to buy my book, I'd say also read the others. Uh, Elizabeth Mays, her stuff is quite practical. McNabbin Wynn, um, also uh, very accessible. Difference with mine, I think, is the writing style. Tends to be quite conversational. Uh, next colleague said, Jesus, just like listening to you talk. It's that accessibility and level of detail that grabs people. It is a challenge to make a dry topic interesting. Uh, in any event, I want to reach a broader audience. And so I went back to Oxford University Press, and it's currently in the works. It was accepted. This one is called Credit Intelligence and Modeling, Many Paths Through the Forest of Credit Rating and Scoring. The credit intelligence aspect is tied in with the uh, identification of data, the extraction of data, the analysis of data, and the dissemination of information after the analysis, people that need it. I went into a lot of depth on the history of intelligence agencies, the history of credit before getting into things like business processes and the sort of statistical techniques that are used much of it has an overlap with the first book, but greater detail. And as I dug into it, I found myself looking uh, into aspects of statistical theory that you know one doesn't necessarily stumble across readily. Uh, so although it might have started as that, the content is barely recognizable. For every page that I write, I probably have to read a thousand. And a lot of uh, what's presented is a synthesis of stuff from other sources. A criticism uh, that was raised was that 60 to 70 percent of this you can find in other places. Yeah, but do you want to have to read everything else that I've read? Everything these days you can read somewhere else. But uh, yeah, what of it is valuable? Very, very true. Very true. Um, I would like to think that I've come up with a couple of approaches that are uh, innovative and that other people can employ. Uh, approaches that I've used to, uh, to, to good effect. Thank you, Raymond. It's been a pleasure and an education. Now, we purposefully kept the level of today's discussion very high, focusing on foundational concepts and building context. But in the corporate world, we're seldom given time to do that before we're asked to demonstrate real business benefits. So in next week's episode, I address that. Graham Whitley of Quid Pro Consulting puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to that, and has been known to structure his contracts so that no fees will be charged unless certain revenue targets are met. I ask him how he links his lending strategies to real and measurable revenue gains, and we talk a little bit about Champion Challenger and how to structure those tests. Join me next Thursday for that episode. How to Lend Money to Strangers is a podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit life cycle. You'll find all episodes on Spotify, the Apple Podcast Player, or wherever you're listening to this one.
Interestingly, South Africa had the first car loan scorecard uh, in 1978, but uh, the second generation scorecard in 1983 was programmed uh, into a calculator, uh, an HP41C calculator, if I remember correctly. I programmed it. I struggled to get the scorecard in. I had two bytes remaining on this calculator, so it was tight. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 